I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The collapse in Tory discipline over next year is going to be the thing to watch for. That's the, the, the biggest problem. Welcome to Political Fix, the Financial Times' essential insider guide to Westminster. I'm Lucy Fisher. The FT's Robert Shrimsley there, talking about the government's prospects. More from Robert shortly. Also in this episode, a deal is struck at the COP Climate Summit to transition away from fossil fuels. We'll hear more about the UK's performance on the world stage from our reporter who was there. To discuss all of this and more, Robert is here with me in the studio. Hi, Robert. Hi, Lucy. And also on the pod today is the FT's Miranda Green. Hello, Miranda. Hello. So... Another week, another close shave in the Commons for Rishi Sunak. This time on his emergency Rwanda legislation about removing asylum seekers to the East African nation. The PM managed to persuade enough Tory MPs not to vote against him to avoid a defeat, but almost 30 defied the three-line whip to abstain. So where does this leave his leadership? Robert, is he fatally weakened by what happened this week or has he emerged from it somehow stronger? No, I don't think he's been weakened by this week because in the end, the rebels overreached. They talked themselves up far too much uh, and in the end didn't deliver on their threat. Um, although one could argue that the threat is still there down the line. But you, you know that we had the, sort of the worst of the Brexit era reprise of these rather preening right-wing backbenchers, you know, five different groups all calling themselves I think, the research group or the common sense group who you know allowed themselves to be called the five families in mm. godfather reference uh, forgetting i think by the way that the five families are all gunned down at the end of the first godfather spoiler alert i think in the end sunak came out of it okay because he faced them down didn't give any ground and they were the ones who were made to look um a, a bit foolish and they overreached in all kinds of ways they went going to breakfast with him and they're all rude to him and so at that point you've actually got to deliver the goods if you're going to be, behave like that and they didn't now i don't think the revolt's gone away and it could come back down the line but you know he emerged the winner from this round and just uh, for your bonus points can you name the five families these five factions okay, that have so there's the european up. research group right one the northern research group two the common sense group three the um the New Conservatives. Yep, four. And the Growth Group. I can't remember its yes, precise title. Yes, the Conservative Growth Group. Mm. Ding, ding. Um, Miranda, um, it's not just on the right that he's facing pressure, is it? Because now as we move ahead, the One Nation Group, Robert Buckland, former Justice Secretary, he suggested he wants to, or is mulling over making some uh, amendments to make sure that Sunak doesn't follow through on his vow to the right to tighten this legislation. Yeah, that's right. And actually, they're quite numerous, the moderate Conservatives, who were also unhappy with the bill at second reading, but decided to support it. So in a sense, if it was just a numbers game, you'd think that Sunak would pay more attention to their concerns. And as you say, you've got Robert Buckland, you've got lots of people there who are not only lawyers, but also have held positions as government law officers, as ministers. 
So they know what they're talking about when it comes to the legal niceties. And there is a threat that they will actually have number 10 on the back foot when everyone comes back in January. And also, of course, when it moves to the House of Lords, you've got a lot of legal brains Mm. in the House of Lords, not least on the cross benches. And so they can argue that they're not being partisan about the legislation, that they're just worried about Britain's adherence to the rule of international law. So I think, you know, the headaches are really not over for Rishi Sunak. And he sort of started off his premiership and then said again the other day, unite or die to his party. But much as he's kind of sailed through the drama at the beginning of this week, I think it would be wrong to think that the problem has actually eased. Not least because, you know, all that fun stuff that you've been talking about, Lucy and Robert, you know, the five families, the psychodrama, the more that that goes on, the less number 10 is actually able to set their own agenda and yeah. talk about the things that they might want to communicate to voters in the run-up to an election. And, and you, you sort of lose control of the narrative then in, in quite a serious way. Well, I think uh, there's certainly um, a lot in that. And I've been struck that although the Prime Minister is trying to frame this as emergency uh, legislation, he's not bringing it back to the Commons next week, although it's sitting for a couple of days. He's not likely to bring it back in the first week of January either. It could be um, the middle of next month, several weeks hence, before he even tries to get it through the third reading, such as the anxiety and nervousness in Downing Street uh, about this. Um, Robert, can I ask you about the brilliant column you've written this week? Um, Always. Wait. <laughs> when you frame it like that, definitely. Um, your theory is this doesn't really have anything to do with Rwanda at all when it comes to the pressure coming from the right. They already think that this election is lost and this is about the fight for the soul of the party after the next election. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's nothing to do with Rwanda, but it's that's not the fundamental issue. The point is you have a caucus of MPs um, and in this case, one shouldn't just think about the ones who are threatening to rebel, because there's also, you know, an, another chunk of MPs who sort of broadly agree with them, but are a bit more loyal and a bit more, you know, a bit less li- likely to try and do damage to soon out before the election. And what you're seeing is an argument about where the Conservative Party should be in the future, um, either going into the election or post-election. And it's those people who think that immigration is going to be one of the defining issues of politics in the future and who look to some of the things you're seeing um, both in the US and Republicans and on parts of Europe with Maloney or uh, Le Pen and even Orban, although they can see his downsides. Um, and they're saying this is the kind I'm of... Glad, sort of to hear, glad to hear that, Robert. I'm well, glad to hear you say that they can see the downsides so, of Orban's Some of them hungry. anyway. And, and, and they're looking at this and they're saying this is the direction that the right is going across Europe because immigration is going to become one of the defining issues and we need to be like this. And they want immigration to be a central issue. They want the Tories to be talking about it all the time. They also want the row over the European Convention of Human Rights and they want to see Britain pull out. And I think what you're seeing is an attempt to set the whole agenda for the Conservative Party after the election. I can certainly imagine this being a situation where people standing for the leadership of the Conservative Party after an election defeat are sort of browbeaten into giving a commitment to review British membership of the European Convention of Human Rights or actually just leaving it. And I think one one of the great things about being in opposition is you don't have the responsibility for your policies and your beliefs. Um, and you don't have to look at the nuances and complexities. So it, the freedom of opposition will make it much easier to be hardline. And I think this is all about trying to set the frames of reference for the Conservative Party after the election. And Miranda, where do you think we are regarding the Tories' fortunes? I mean, I was really struck by that 
Very damning YouGov poll in the middle of this week showing that Rishi Sunak himself has now slipped to his lowest ever favourability rating. He's at minus 49, a 10-point drop from late November, and now hovering around the same level that Boris Johnson was at the time of his resignation. Yeah, I think it is looking really bad for them. You know, the comparison that's always made is to 1997, when Tony Blair had his landslide victory against John Major. You know, although John Major was also kind of exhausted, had run out of ministers after 18 years, we're only at 13 years now, but it still certainly has that same sort of vibe of the end of an era for Sunak. But, you know, John Major was quite well liked as an individual, and the economy wasn't doing badly either in the run up to the 97 election. In fact, you know, Labour inherited a pretty good scenario in that respect. So in a sense, Sunak's plight is even worse than in the run-up to 1997. And, you know, I think they've also, because of the events of recent years around Brexit, got this additional problem of fearing that voters could flee on the right to the Reform Party. You know, I've been speaking to a lot of pollsters about, you know, whether the Reform Party's readings in the recent polls are real or not. I mean, they're sort of going up towards 10 in some of them. And 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 it's felt that it's a bit overstated in the polls, that they should be that high. Mm. But even so, you only sort of need the Tory party to be scared of voters leaving to support the Reform Party, as they were for UKIP and then the Brexit Party, for it to affect policymaking, the rhetoric in the election. I mean, I, I, you know, I asked a a Sunak advisor at their party conference in Manchester when we were there um, together, Lucy, you know, are you you hoping to do a deal with the Reform Party as you did with the Brexit Party at the last election where they stand down candidates to avoid splitting the vote on the right? And they said, well, we don't need to do that. We just need to do a deal with Reform Party voters. So that kind of shows you how they're sort of opening up the possibility of the rhetoric being really, really harsh to attract those voters who are very anti-immigration. So, you know, I think there's a slightly desperate measures for an end-of-era Conservative Party. I think that point's really interesting, Miranda, and and something I've been struck uh, by the Reform Party, an area they're trying to make progress on, is by drawing attention to the gravy train narrative about Parliament. I didn't tune in uh, much to uh, the jungle this time, I don't know about either of you, but um, I did watch a couple of moments and I saw Nigel Farage out there in Australia holding court, explaining to his fellow contestants how people who attend the House of Lords get £300 uh, per day. And I suppose that brings me on to um, another big development that's uh, hogged the limelight in the second half of this week, which is around the Tory MP, Scott Benton. The Standards Committee has said he should face a 35-day suspension from the Commons for offering to lobby ministers and leak confidential information for up to £4,000 a month. Of course, if this suspension goes ahead, if there is a recall uh, petition, this will be the seventh by-election that the Tories are facing uh, following uh, allegations of misconduct. Well, I mean, actually, of course, the reason people like Scott Benton get caught out in these things is because Parliament isn't enough of a gravy train for them. Whereas the European Parliament, which Nigel Farage was talking about and which he enjoyed, enjoyed the gravy boat for many years, um, Parliament actually is, is quite European a European gravy lake, Robert. How the, about that? The European gravy <laughs> lake. I like Sounds it. Sounds revolting. Um, Parliament is, is a little bit more restrictive and they actually, they're always looking for outside income. But what it will do, it will just feed the general contempt for all politicians. I always think that with sleaze scandals, 
They don't tend to favour any political party, mm. really. They just bring down the entire public view of Parliament in general. Miranda, what have you made uh, of this particular case around Scott Benton? Well, I strongly agree with Robert's last point there, which is that it just generally lowers the tone and nobody in politics benefits. I mean, the criticisms of his behaviour by the committee that has recommended that he be suspended is that his, his comments basically saying that he was for sale and implying that so were all his colleagues as MPs. They've said that that was toxic and that it was sullying the reputation of the whole of the Commons. And that is the problem. I mean, we've had this problem for a while, though, haven't we? Because it's the best kind of alibi in the world to say, well, everybody's at it, because it distracts attention from yourself if you're a wrongdoer. And of course, you know, we don't really have a, a system that's corrupt in that way, but it all feeds into public perceptions. And, you know, over recent years, all of the problems that beset the Johnson administration have, I think, lowered public trust in government and in, in the political class. Ever since the expenses scandal of 2009, actually, this has been a huge issue for voters. And actually, people I've spoke to who've been out canvassing for all the parties have said one of the most depressing things in the run-up to this election we're about to have is the general sense that the problems the country faces are serious and we don't really trust any of you to solve them for us, not even the cost of living. And there's actually polling showing that that is true as well. Although this by-election, if it happens, will be interesting because that's a seat that Labour held from 97 to 2019. And it might be a sort of red wall test to see if they can take it back again. Mm. And of course, next week, we're expecting to hear the result of the recall petition into Peter Bone in Wellingborough. Um, a reminder, he was suspended for six weeks for bullying an employee and committing indecent exposure, according to a parliamentary watchdog. Um, he has denied uh, those charges. Do you not think, Lucy, it is an interesting just how many MPs this parliament have fallen victim to this new procedure under which the Standards Committee can trigger, or um, with the approval of a vote of the House, can trigger a by-election, essentially. Yes. And it's, it, it must admit, it never occurred to me when this power was given that it, we would see so many people falling by this. You know, I, I sort of assumed either they'd be shamed into resignation or, you know, the voters would have their say at the next general election, which is how it used to be. I've been quite surprised by how many people have fallen victim to this. And it'd be interesting to see if we see a repeat in the next parliament or if people will have wised up to the, the risks. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. By my count, we've had um, six uh, Tory held seats have sparked by-elections. There's been one Labour, Chris Matheson, and one SNP, yeah. uh, Margaret Ferrier. But then we have seen people who've, who've jumped before they were pushed, Owen Paterson, of course, and Boris Johnson. So I think it is a very interesting dynamic. But fast forwarding to early next year, we could potentially have two more by-elections on our hands. Again, just very perilous situation for Rishi Sunak, isn't it? It, it is. And I, mean, I think this, this is where some of the stuff he, he had a win this week. But this is his, his big problem next year is the, the breakdown of discipline. And the thing that gives a prime minister power or a leader power, is the sense that they're a winner, the sense that they're winning. You know, why is Keir Starmer able to do all the things he's doing at the moment? Because Labour MPs, whether they like them or not, think this man's a winner, we don't want to mess it up, he's got authority, we're going to stay on the right side of him, and also we don't want to blow our chances. Conversely, if you're on the Tory side, you look at Rishi Sunak, you have another couple of by-election defeats possibly, you think this man's leading us over the cliff, it's everyone for themselves, I'm going to do what I think best serves me. So I think that's the, the, the biggest problem is just the collapse in Tory discipline over next year is going to be the thing to watch for. And Miranda, even some Tory sort of strategists and, and those looking at the campaign are now sort of saying, well, you know, 
We think that a hung parliament is underpriced as an outcome. I mean, when you're trying to argue that, you know, you're heading for a hung parliament <laughs> rather than a rout, uh, you're not in a great place, are you? No, no, exactly. So, although, actually, I do think that the chat about the, pro- the potential outcomes is very interesting. I mean, you, Lucy, in your big piece with George earlier this week, were writing about the fact that Morgan McSweeney, the strategic supremo for Keir Starmer, had been doing a presentation to the Labour side about all the different potential outcomes and sort of drawing attention to the fact that the electorate these days is very volatile, which makes it hard to call. So it's not surprising in a sense that all of the top teams are, 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 are sort of gaming pot- potential scenarios. But I, I think it's just also very difficult to see this government, you know, pulling off a win. So it's kind of gradations of failure, isn't it? Which is a long way from from Sunak when he first came in looking like a like a fresh face. You know, now he's having to answer questions about why he's so tetchy, which is a long way from where we were just over a year ago. I have to say, I did spot one of our colleagues um, taking a Liberal Democrat MP out to lunch today, which is always a sign that you're hedging for a hung parliament. <laughs> <laughs> well, were they giving them the full works? Was it the, was it the sort of the three Michelin starred lunch, Robert? No, they probably weren't that committed to the hung parliament theory. Okay. <laughs> I would say a prep sandwich would mean not not much buy-in for that theory. Well, where, where do you close the adjournment in Portcullis House? Where does that fit into the, the taxonomy? Oh, I think that's... Hmm. Possible, but not probable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This week saw a deal at the COP28 climate talks in Dubai, which some are hailing as historic. Despite the UK's climate minister having to fly back to the UK to take part in the Rwanda vote, the UK says it is serious in its intentions to stick to COP targets on moving away from fossil fuels. The FT's climate reporter Kenza Bryan is here to explain what the COP deal means. Hi, Kenza. Hi, Lucy. So uh, first up, you were out in Dubai for the first week of the talks. Um, Give us a sense of what it was like. I was there for the first week, which was really the trade show element of the talks, more so this year than any other year. There were tens of thousands of um, delegates there in the blue zone where climate negotiations take place. Many of those were fossil fuel lobbyists, bankers, people from the business world, communications people um, who were rubbing shoulders with climate negotiators. And that happens every year. But this year, the, the sheer volume of people who were there from outside the kind of geeky climate negotiation and political sphere, that was unusual. Let's talk about what was agreed. Um, And I'm glad you're here to parse it for us, because on the one hand, people were claiming this was a big success. It was a historic agreement. On the other hand, there's been this huge row about the way uh, the parties have junked the phrase phasing out fossil fuels and moved to transitioning away from, which many people think is weaker language. How big a deal is that change of language? And can you give us the top points of what was agreed? Yes. So UN Climate Chief Simon Steele said that this really marked the beginning of the end for fossil fuels because it was the first time in nearly 30 years of having these yearly COPs that countries clearly and explicitly agreed that the end is in sight for coal, oil and gas. And that sounds potentially uncontroversial, given that scientists have been saying that the end has to be in sight for a while, but actually it was a really big deal. And so nearly 200 countries agreed in this text to call for a transition away from fossil fuels in the global energy system with the aim of reaching net zero by 2050. So the language is relatively soft, but it's tougher than 
some people expected, and it's certainly tougher than the initial draft that really made waves when, as you said, it completely dropped this idea of phasing away from fossil fuels. But we're going to see some of the oil states step up production. The US is set to hit its highest volume in oil and gas production ever. I mean, what's your assessment of how realistic the ultimate UN climate goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees is? Yeah, the, the key loophole in that text was that A, the language wasn't binding, and B, there was no clear date. So I think the best way of thinking about this agreement is that it sends a market signal and it's not a legally binding contract, um, nor will it be interpreted as such. So the national oil company of the host state, the UAE, so ADNOC plans to increase production cap- capacity by 10% to 5 million barrels a day by 2027. So that probably tells us all we need to know about how immediate and how binding the language itself is, which doesn't make it meaningless. Let's just bring it back to the UK. I mentioned Graham Stewart, the net zero minister, um, making this mad dash 7,000 miles back to the UK and then back to Dubai. Did that ruffle any feathers? What was the UK representation like? Or were we a sort of a minnow in, in this discussion? So the UK did announce about £1.6 billion of funding for new climate projects. It announced a new wind farm in the North Sea. But I would say the vibes for the UK's leadership on the world stage were not great, partly because, as you said, its head of delegation, Graham Stewart, the Minister for Net Zero, did fly back on Tuesday. Rishi Sunak only spent a day on the ground. That said, the King and Keir Starmer, um, leader of the opposition, both spent some time out there. And the UK did strongly back this idea of a fossil fuel phase-out, which obviously the, the EU and small island states and various other countries felt very strongly about. So I think it was a real mixed bag. Robert? I just find myself looking at these summits now and thinking, this is sort of just a desperate attempt to keep the show on the road. I mean, they've virtually abandoned any hope of 1.5. Um, getting rid of fossil fuels is just a transitional ambition. I, I mean, did you have the sense at all that people are just going through the motions a bit on this? I think it's really easy to feel cynical about COPs, given that it is. <laughs> scientists have said we need to halve emissions in the next seven years. And even this year, the hottest year on record, they're on track to rise by more than 1%. So things are clearly not going great from a global warming point of view. But another way of looking at these gigantic yearly meetings is that they reflect the state of the world rather than necessarily shaping it. And if the state of the world is one in which it's acknowledged that we need to move towards an end to fossil fuels, even if that's in the next decade or the next two decades, that's still a significant and specific change compared to where we were, say, two years ago, um, when we saw those tears from Alok Sharma at the Glasgow COP conference, when the wording on just coal, not even coal, oil and gas, had to be watered down at the last minute. So that that is a change. Because I think what will worry me from the global, from the climate change perspective, is that it seems to me that politics is moving away from this in lots of places, rather than towards it. You know, actually, five, ten years ago, the global consensus was very much, we have to act, hmm. we've got to get motoring. Now you're seeing more and more governments either resiling from it or watering it down, saying, you know, we're pushing this goal back another five years, we, we're going to do this, but by 2050, not well before. And it just feels to me like the, the tide is moving against. Yes. And certainly there was a real emphasis at COP on this idea of a just transition, which basically means don't make the poorest in society pay, because people are aware that it's an easy win for 
politicians to say climate change is something that rich people worry about and it's not for this electoral cycle. Nevertheless, compared to the optics of COP at the very start, which was being hosted by a petrostate run by the boss of a national oil and gas company, it still seems significant that they have acknowledged the beginning of the end. We don't know when that end will come, obviously. Kenza Bryan, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me on. And to round up this week, who are we picking for political fix stock picks? Miranda. Well, actually, you know, bearing in mind our earlier conversation about the Rwanda bill, I was I was tempted to buy all the cross benches in the House of Lords in a kind of mass <laughs> festive splurge. Um, but I think I'm probably going to go for David Davis, actually, because the story of him seeing off some attackers who were beating up a homeless man in the vicinity of the House of Commons did really cheer me up um, and, and drew attention to the horrible, horrible every winter we have to you know, think about what's happening on our streets as a rich country in terms of the homelessness crisis, which is getting worse. So I was pleased to read that story. So I'm buying David Davis, which has nothing to do with his politics and everything to do with his uh, attitude to the vulnerable. Yeah, well, I think good on him because how, how old is he now? He must be in his he's 60s. He's in his 60s, well into 60s. But he's a, he's a former uh, Special Forces reservist. Doesn't like to mention it, though. <laughs> no, you, you wouldn't know. No, no. <laughs> it's like done deep research. Well, we'll let him off this time. Robert. Um, okay, so I'm going to go for a slightly obscure um, choice, which is Julian Smith, who is a former chief whip, former Northern Ireland secretary uh, under the Conservatives, who basically has been drafted in by Rishi Sunak for sort of impossible missions. He was given a role in trying to pull the rebellious right back on side and, and shore up um, the government's majority in, in the Rwanda vote, which also, by the way, speaks not very well of the existing whips operation. You know, I did think about selling them instead. <laughs> but Julian Smith has also been playing a behind-the-scenes role in trying to get Stormont back um, into session and trying to pull the DUP um, back in, in, into the Northern Irish Parliament. And so he's, although he's out of government and he's quite a high chance, I think, of standing down at the election, I don't think he's confirmed anything yet, but I think quite possible. I think he's he's having a sort of Indian summer, um, getting the government's business done for it. And in fact, there's quite a network of ex-chief whips um, who the government can call them. Because, and Gavin Williamson, former chief whip, is also doing this kind of thing. So I'm going to pick Julian Smith because he's doing, doing the Lord's work for Rishi Sunak behind the scenes. What about you, Lucy? I'm going for Vaughan Gething. Um, it's not often I willingly reference Welsh politics, but given that Welsh First Minister Mark Drayford has stepped down this week, it looks like Gething is the bookie's favourite to get back in. I don't know enough about the, the, the machinations of the Welsh Labour Party. Being a frontrunner is never a good thing. But it's interesting that if he were to win, you would have the leader of the of, of the Welsh Parliament, the Scottish Parliament, the Prime Minister, the Mayor of London, all being people from ir- immigrant descent. So when we're having these enraged debates about multicultural scientific immigration, this is just worth stopping back occasionally and looking at the fact that without much fuss or fanfare, uh, the countries of the United Kingdom seem quite accepting. Well, a very good point, uh, and I think a very good point to end on. Robert, Miranda, thanks for joining. Thank you. Cheers. Well, before we end, a quick word about the FT's annual charity auction. You can bid to have lunch with some of our top columnists and editors, including Political Fix regulars Miranda, Stephen Bush and George Parker. They're worth every penny, and the restaurants involved are donating meals for an excellent cause. All proceeds go to the FT's financial literacy and inclusion campaign, Flick. Go to ft.com forward slash appeal to see what's on offer. I've put a link in the show notes, along with articles linked to today's show, including Robert's column, which are free to read for listeners. 
There's also a link there to Stephen's award-winning Inside Politics newsletter. You'll get 30 days free. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Political Fix was presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Audrey Tinlin. Manuela Saragossa is the executive producer. Original music and sound engineering by Breen Turner. Rod Fitzgerald is the broadcast engineer. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. We'll meet again here next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.